today on Ag News Daily. Take existing products that growers already know and trust and help them do completely new things that they've never been able to do before. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Dylan Howell, one of the hosts for the Ag News Daily Podcast, joined as always by my co-host, Mike Pearson. Mike, it is snowing finally in Des Moines area today, and I'm not looking forward to it. Well, it is wintertime, Delaney. I've got a feeling this isn't going to be the only snowfall we will have for this entire season, so you probably better get used to it. Put on your uh, your, your big girl pants and engage your all-wheel drive and rock and roll. I, I just wish I could live somewhere that doesn't have snow. Me too. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, I don't mind the snow. I enjoy it when it's snowing. I think it's pretty. I think it's very festive and seasonal. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't mm-hmm. like the cold or the fact that once it snows, the snow hangs around. That's the part that gets mm-hmm. frustrating. Yeah, I agree. And then people don't know how to drive in the snow, and they drive like dummies. Well, you know... Especially in the city. Yeah. And I think a lot of that, you know, I don't want to blame it all on snow, Delaney. you got to remember that most people, quite frankly, are idiots. (laughs) Nice, Mike. Thank you. Well, you know, I think that's just good to know. The listeners to the podcast are, of course, as we know... Very intelligent. ...much smarter than the average Joe Schmo out there whipping donuts in his mom's Ford Explorer in the high school parking lot. You know, we are <laughs> we're an educated, rare, elevated class of people. Agreed. Okay, this is actually, I was reading this news article today. It doesn't really relate to agriculture directly, but I thought it was fascinating, especially as we look at, like, idiotic people or thing, idiotic things people do. The, Los, or, uh, the New York Times put out a article called big tuna finds a scapegoat millennials big tuna so the big tuna like the fish tuna fish yeah that's agriculture yeah kind of so uh it's saying basically the wall street journal reported on sunday that the overall consumption of the packaged fish tuna has declined by more than 40 percent in the united states over the last three decades according to the usda and Millennials, I guess, are largely to blame for this. Do you want to? Do you have any guesses as to why millennials aren't consuming tuna anymore? Um, they don't know how to make tuna salad. No. They don't like the fact that sometimes dolphins are caught. <laughs> I don't know about that one. Basically, this is so stupid. I mean, okay, it's stupid, but then I'll tell you what I think about it after that. Uh, they said many people, quote, can't be bothered to open and drain the cans or fetch utensils and dishes to eat the tuna, including owning can openers. And I have to admit, I am guilty of not owning a can opener. I think I just bought one last year, like there, for the first time since my adult up. life. You're a grown up now. You, you own a can opener. It's just so bizarre. Like a lot of millennials don't own can openers, which... I was like, no, that seems dumb. And then I think about it and I, oh, yeah, I guess I didn't really own one until like last year. And I rarely use it because I try to avoid things they have to use a can opener for. Exactly. You know, I think this is a, it's an interesting story in the sense that, ha, 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 millennials are stupid, don't know how to work a can opener. But it also speaks to the change in food retailing over the past 25 Mm -hmm. years. You know, my parents and your parents, Delaney, grew up on canned food. That was what you did. You had canned green beans, you had canned corn, you had canned everything. 
whereas by the time we were growing up, the whole frozen food market had exploded. And so rather than buying mm -hmm. canned green beans, a lot of us grew up with frozen. Frozen, you know, right. you name it. Everything is frozen. And you don't need a can opener on something TV that's been dinners. frozen. Yeah. I think the only thing that I use my can opener for is tuna because I do make a lot of tuna salad. It's one of my favorite, <laughs> uh, favorite lunches. Um, and I think that's it. I used to use it on my Dinty Moore beef stew, but now even that comes with the pop top lid. You don't need a can opener. Mm -hmm. Pumpkin is really the only thing I can think of that I definitely need to use a can opener for. And sometimes like tomato sauces, like tomato paste or tomato juices, like if sure. you're making chili, I don't think those usually have a pop tab, but everything else does. I just thought that was kind of a fascinating article I read this morning. Yeah, it's very interesting. And you know, it's it's cool. It kind of dovetails in with a story I wanted to talk about, as long as we're talking consumers and food. Delaney, the average choice plus prime percentage in beef, all the beef animals slaughtered, is just about 70%. That's the historical average of the really high-grade meat that you get out of American beef. In 2018, as of last week, the average choice plus prime percentage of the total fed cattle kill is 81.11%. We are producing 10% more choice and prime beef than we have ever produced before in history. And what is cool is that box beef values are staying very strong, which means consumers are out there, they're buying right. more high-quality beef, which I think is fantastic. Let's give people a taste okay. of what the good stuff is like. I'm going to ask a question, as I often do, post questions on the podcast about things that I'd like to know more about. Here's my question. So we're raising overall, you know, higher-quality protein, specifically beef, to choice and prime, et cetera. Um, how do they make a hamburger? Do they then just take all of the stuff that's like the lower grade cattle and make that into hamburger? Do prime and choice cattle also make hamburger? Yep. Is it a better cut of hamburger if so? So listeners, I know we've got some folks who are well better versed in meat science than I am, but I'm going to take my stab at it. Delaney, I understand that mm -hmm. you can have, excuse me, any animal can be ground into hamburger, uh, any mm -hmm. beef animal. And if it's a, you know, like an older Holstein, a four or five year old Holstein cow, that whole cow uh -huh. is going to become hamburger. It'll grind the prime cuts okay, up with right. the lesser cuts. But even on those critters that would grade choice and prime, you know, there are still some cuts that just don't quite have a home, whether it's roasts in the off season or whatever, and they'll get added to the grind mix as well. So the, so it doesn't matter if you're using a prime steer or a choice steer like the hamburger is all the same. I guess that's what I was asking. Yeah, because the hamburger is all, you know, choice and prime is determined by a bunch of different factors, but one of the key ones is the fat percentage, the marbling. And in hamburger, mm -hmm. there is no marbling because right. you take okay. whatever lean yeah, beef duh. you can get and you mix in some fatty cuts and you get your 20%, your 90% or, you know, 93%, whatever. Right. So it's more of I a, feel like that's something I probably should have learned in, like, meat science or something yeah. in college but you know yeah i'm surprised you didn't that would seem like yeah you're right something you should learn there. i didn't take a meat science class so maybe oh, that's why that explains why you probably didn't learn it in that class delaney you have to take the class <laughs> to learn the thing i know <laughs> and then for our college student listeners 
if you take the class, you have to go to the class to learn the thing as well. These are some of my lessons oh, from college. Oh, is that? Oh, yeah. Okay, nice. Yeah. Nice, Mike. Yeah, I'm here to help. Mm. Good. Well, speaking of beef, so a division of JBS located in Arizona recalled six and a half million pounds of various raw, non-intact beef products could be ground beef, as we were just talking about there. And then December 4th today, that recall was increased by 5.1, basically, million pounds of raw beef products. I think JBS is having quite a few problems, Mike. Yeah. Do we know where this meat was distributed? Do uh, do our listeners in certain geographies need to be more aware than others? That's a good question. It doesn't say what the where the 5 million pounds was sent or located or any of that. I think it also came out of that Arizona facility, though. Right. That's what I was thinking. It's probably in the southwest, but... Yeah, hey, so listen, too. FDA, if you're going to issue these kind of warnings, maybe <laughs> let us end users know where we could find the product just so we're, you know, a little more uh-huh. safe on our end. Yeah, no, that makes too much sense, Mike. I think it might. Okay, well, 99.99999% of all the food you eat in this country is very, very safe, folks. Don't worry too much about yeah. this, but also make sure, you know, if you got some beef from JBS, make sure you cook it, you know. Get, get her up uh-huh. to uh, get her up to the right temp and uh, kill that salmonella. What is the right temp? One sixty. Yes, safe and savory one sixty, I believe. Mhm. For your ground beef there, or just you know, just yeah. use it in taco and just brown the heck out of it. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, I'm full of great advice. Uh huh. Today you are especially. Yes. I've got, uh, we got some advice from President Trump on what is going to happen with this China trade deal. Delaney, I know you've been kind of locked up all day in various mm-hmm. meetings, but President Trump was, of course, busy t- tweeting, and he said he has put U.S. Trade Rep. Robert Lighthizer in charge of this upcoming agreement with China, and he said, quote, or he said, Lighthizer will determine whether a, quote, real deal with China was possible, and if it is, we will get it done. But if not, remember, I am a tariff man. That was his tweet this morning, and that caused some jitters in the markets, less so on the commodity side of the ledger. We're still in the green on the grains, but definitely on the equity side. We had the Dow Jones sell off about 800 points at midday, its largest drop since October, which is a little disconcerting since it happened at the same time we saw the yield curve invert on the uh, Treasury bonds, which is something we haven't seen, I think, since the Great Recession. So as we talked about with Bubba yesterday, we are getting some signals that perhaps the stock market is due for at least a bit of a correction here before too long. What does that mean, the Treasury bonds? It means... Switch so, their curve? Yep, so the curve is the difference in yield or the difference in interest rate between the short dated like the the 30 day the overnight treasuries or the yeah 30 day 15 day whatever two week versus the year and so in theory you should pay a higher interest rate the longer the term of the bond right because you're risking that money mm-hmm. for a longer period of time you should get paid a little better but what has happened is those back months those deferred treasuries, the one year and longer, those interest rates have dropped, which means, economists figure, that perhaps people aren't as bullish about the future growth of the economy. So they're 
they're not mm. willing to take as much risk and pay the premium that they would to buy those bonds out in the future. So it's more of an indicator mm. than it is, oh, the sky is falling type of thing. Gotcha. That makes sense. Yeah. So, I, you know, I just thought that was interesting. There's been a lot of talk today, kind of follow-up chat about the conversation between President Trump and President Xi of China over the weekend. One mm -hmm. of the big things I've seen reported a number of different places, and I've reached out to a trade attorney. We'll try to get him on here uh, before the end of mm. the week. Good. The China's state-run media has not corroborated a lot of what President Trump mm -hmm. and Robert Lighthizer have talked about. They have been very, very subdued with this trade negotiation conversation. And I, I mm -hmm. think people in the U.S., myself included, are having a hard time figuring out exactly what does that mean? Why would they be tight-lipped about these things? I would think the Chinese would be excited to have this trade war coming to an end, especially since China hasn't really had to change anything to get President Trump to pledge stop using tariffs. Yeah, and we never saw an official press conference or some sort of joint statement issued. And the reasoning was because of President Trump or because of President Bush Sr.'s death. But it's looking a little fishy how all of this is coming together. Now we've got those reports from the Chinese state media or non-reports, actually. Yeah. Yeah, it's just, it's puzzling. It's one of those things where I mm -hmm. wish I had a better understanding of how Chinese internal politics worked, because, boy, that would seem to be super helpful at a time like this. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, yeah. Well, so we're, we're starting to get little bits and pieces trickling down the pipeline here as the week progresses about what this, you know, statement about buying a substantial amount of ag products means, what really happened at the G20 summit. And Secretary Purdue said just yesterday that China will probably resume buying American soybeans around January 1st. That's the timeline that they're looking here because of limited supplies in Brazil and Brazil's soybeans being at a premium to U.S. soybeans. Um, but it has yet to be determined whether the Chinese will remove tariffs on imports of American soybeans. We don't know that yet for sure. Hmm. Well, you know, like you mentioned, Brazil beans have had such a premium built into them that right now you probably could import beans from the Pacific Northwest and be comparable to Brazilian pricing, even yeah. with the tariff. I think so, too. Huh. Well, actually, while we're talking about soybeans, I've got an update here on dicamba. Iowa State Extension weed scientist Bob Hartzler said that uh, Iowa State is issuing some recommendations. Of course, these aren't law. These are just uh, follow-ups to the recertification of the dicamba label. They say that what we need to be doing is applying dicamba early in the season, try to do as mm -hmm. little in-crop application as possible, 95% of growers want the technology to manage water hemp. And, of course, this is the trouble. You can't kill water hemp with dicamba if it hasn't emerged. So he says if post-emergence uh. applications are necessary, they should be as early as possible. Try to keep it before the V3 stage is uh, the ISU weed science uh, recommendation. That makes sense. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Just use common sense. Let's keep this technology around. Let's not uh, be peeing on our neighbor's Wheaties and spraying dicamba <laughs> all over hell and back. That's nice. All right. Well, the only other piece of news I have for today is another emerging market. When we look at the protein markets, and this isn't one that we commonly talk about on the podcast here, but that, that is the lamb and sheep market. Last week, the U.S. Meat Export Federation 
launched the U.S. lamb's return to the Japanese market, kicking it off with an educational seminar and a tasting event in Tokyo that attracted more than 200 different guests, including chefs, importers, trade media, and other key food industry professionals. Because back in 2003, when we saw the detection of BSE, Japan closed their U.S. lamb industry to the U.S. for nearly 15 years before reopening it in just July of this year. And this event was really dedicated to celebrating that announcement and hopefully getting more U.S. lamb into the Japanese market. Absolutely. Hey, anytime we can ship more meat over to other places, it is not a bad thing, Delaney. I knew you were going to have to do some sort of pun today. (laughs) I'm so predictable. Well, you are. Speaking of predictable, just about this time in every podcast, Delaney, we like to talk about the markets. Should we do that again today? Yes. Let's do it. All right, folks, and our markets are brought to us by our friends at the Zaner Group. Remember, contact them to put a marketing plan in place for to manage what's left of your 2018 crop and that upcoming 2019 growing season. Give them a shout at 317 No. 312-277-0050. Are you sure? Yep. Okay. Give them a call at 312-277-0050 or visit them on the web at zaner.com. And we've got green on the screen in the grain markets today. Looking at corn, the D's corn contract was up three cents at 374 and a quarter, while March was up two and three quarters to close at 384 and three quarters. In soybeans, the January contract closed higher again today, up six cents at 9.11 and three quarters. The March also up six at 9.23 and three quarters. In Chicago, wheat December was up three and a half cents at 5.19 and a quarter. The March up one and a quarter cents to close at 5.22 and a half. Looking over on the livestock side, I got a little bit of strength today in the live cattle markets. December was up 90 cents at 117.7750, with February up a dollar 47.50 to close at 121.65. In feeder cattle, the January contract lost 10 cents to close at 144.40, with the March up 40 to finish at 141.85. And weakness in lean hogs. December down $1.15 at 56.87.50. The February down 85 to finish the day at 66.05. And of course, a quick look over at the dairy market. November contract was up a penny on the day at 14.47. The December down 13 to close at 13. 87. Without further ado, let's kick it over to Darren Anderson for today's Hashtag Tech Tuesday. Well, folks, for today's Hashtag Tech Tuesday, we are diving into a world we have not discussed yet on the Ag News Daily Podcast. We are talking nanotechnology with Dr. Darren Anderson. He is the president of Vive Crop Protection. Darren, thanks for taking the time to join us today. My pleasure, Mike. Why don't we start off with a big overview. What is Vive? How long have you guys been around, and uh, what are you guys doing? So we're a new chemical manufacturer, so many of your listeners probably haven't heard of us, although I I bet there's a few that have. Uh, But we're a new chemical manufacturer, and what we're doing is we're using nanotechnology, uh, which I'm happy to talk about, to take existing products that growers already know and trust and help them do completely new things that they've never been able to do before uh, using nanotechnology. So it's all about making trusted products cutting edge. Okay. 
And I'm glad you're, you want to talk about nanotech because this is something I really want to get into. As a liberal arts major, this whole thing is, <laughs> is like speaking Greek to me. So why don't you break it down in the simplest possible terms? The kid who passed chemistry by cheating. Um, what is nanotechnology? <laughs> Well, if you think about the journey that a chemical takes in order for it to be effective. So if you're using a, a chemical and you're going out and doing a, a foliar spray mid-season, uh, if you think about what you got to do, so you got to take the chemical, you got to mix it up in the spray tank with any other additives you got in there. So whether that's adjuvants or, or other uh, mixture compounds, it's got to go through the spray system, go out through the nozzles, on the end of your spray system, and then it's got to land on a leaf surface, say, and then get into whatever its target is to do its job. Well, it turns out that a lot of the interactions that that chemical has as it goes through that journey are at the nanoscale, so at the the size that, that we talk about when we talk about nanotechnology. So, um, the droplets of oil adjuvant that are in the tank are at the nanoscale. The uh, pores uh, at the end of a spray nozzle are close to the nanoscale. Mm. The uh, waxy layers on the surface of a leaf or on an insect um, kind of skin are all at the nanoscale. So understanding how a chemical interacts with all of those things allows you to control how the chemical interacts with those features and help it do its job better. So what is, I guess I'm kind of coming back to, so nanotech is working with very, very small things. It's the technology of small, but what what is the thing that you're doing to these products to make them compatible? Are you, are you rearranging the chemical formula at the nano scale? How does that process work? Well, let me uh, take a step back and just, first of all, define just how small we're talking about here. Because as you say, nanotechnology is uh, the science of things that are really, really small. And when we're talking small, we're talking very small. So the nanoscale is about one ten millionth the size of you or I. Uh, so just to give you an idea what that scale is, that's about as small as we are relative to the size of the Earth. So we're about 10 million times smaller than the Earth. And the nanoscale is about 10 million times smaller than we are. Oh, wow. So we're talking very, very small. Um, and what we do at Vive, nanotechnology is all about understanding how chemistry interacts with things at that scale to, to help it do its job. And what we do is we use little tiny uh, nanotechnology-built uh, polymers, so plastic shuttles, that are designed to interact with the environment of the chemical in some particular ways to be useful. So as, a, as an example, we've got a couple of products that are on the market now where the shuttles are designed to be able to be mixed in with very, very high salt systems like fertilizers. So they can mix in really, really well with fertilizers. So you may have a chemical that won't mix with fertilizers in the spray tank, but by putting it inside of these little shuttles that mix with the fertilizer, now the chemical can mix with the fertilizer in the spray tank. Gotcha. So you're basically putting the chemical into little nanotech cases, and that allows it to all blend together. What then, what then allows that chemical to be released, so to speak, once it hits its target? 
So in a lot of cases, uh, what, what allows it to release is the fact that our little cases, our little polymer shuttles are actually um, porous. So they've got holes in them, which means that the active ingredient can come and go uh, depending on whether it likes the environment outside of the cases. If it doesn't like the environment outside of the cases, like if it's being mixed in fertilizers, it stays inside where it's protected. But once it's applied to the soil in the furrow, say, or in a foliar application, it's just sitting on the leaf surface. Well, now it doesn't mind the environment outside of the cases. And so it has the opportunity to slowly be released from these cases to do its job. Fantastic. Now, Vive as a company has been been around for how long? So the company itself is about 12 years old, um, and we first started selling uh, products for farmers uh, about three years ago. So we've been on the market for about three years. Okay. And let's talk about some of the products you've developed. Uh, you know, most of our listeners being congregated in the upper Midwest as they are, I know you've developed some, some products for sugar beets as well as corn. Can you tell us a little bit about what you've been doing in that sphere? Sure. So we've been designing a whole portfolio of products using this uh, nanotechnology-based delivery system. And the portfolio of products is all, are all designed to be able to be mixed with uh, starter fertilizer, a pop-up uh, liquid fertilizer to be able to be applied in furrow uh, to give farmers the best possible start for their crop. Uh, so a couple of products that we've had a lot of success with over the last couple of years, one is our Asteroid FC product. Uh, so that's azoxystrobin. Uh, which is the same chemical that's in Quadris, but now for the first time we have azoxystrobin that can be mixed with liquid fertilizer. Uh, so that is a product that we've had a lot of positive feedback uh, for sugar beet growers because it is really one of the best options uh, to be used for control over rhizoctonia uh, in that early season application. Um, but the product's also used in corn, and we've seen good yield uh, yield increases in corn uh, and, and some really uh, interesting crop performance as well. Absolutely, and we're effectively cutting a pass out of the field as well as providing that uh, that protection right from the get-go. Absolutely. I mean, we had some farmers this year that actually talked about the fact that, uh, you know, they, they for sugar beet guys, they'll often come back and do a banded application um, uh, after emergence, and what they said was, uh, by putting our product down, they ended up getting rained out. They weren't able to get out and get their banded pads done. But because they had that early season protection uh, in furrow uh, from Rhizoctonia, they really felt like they had uh, a good uh, baseline of protection, and they didn't have to worry about the fact that they missed their banded application due to the weather. That's pretty cool. So what is coming in the future? You're three years out on commercial applications. What are you guys working on now? What are you cooking up in the labs? Well, one of the other products that we've been selling uh, for corn is our Bifender FC product, which is uh, Bifenthrin. And it's really been a really excellent corn rootworm product. Uh, we've had a lot of really good uh, feedback from the market on that, particularly in areas where they're starting to see uh, resistance to some of the traits that are out there. Um, but what we've got coming in 19 and in 20 is we're going to be launching uh, three new products. We're going to be launching a systemic insecticide uh, called MIDAC for some of those uh, above-ground insect pests. Uh, we're going to be launching another fungicide with a different mode of action uh, that's really designed to be able to control Pythium and Phytophthora. Uh, and we're going to be launching a nematicide. Uh, so the idea is, you know, if you think about the issues that you got to worry about when you're first planting the seed or seedling, you got to worry about 
um, you know, above and below ground pests. You got to worry about different classes of diseases. You got to worry about uh, nematodes, and you potentially got to worry about, um, or you potentially have to worry about nematodes, and you have to worry about uh, getting the right nutrition uh, into your crop to get the crop off to the best possible start. And so, for us, by having this portfolio that covers all of those early season threats, uh, when you combine that with being able to put it down with um, the right starter fertilizer for your field, now all of a sudden we've got a really flexible opportunity uh, to deal with all of those, uh, deal with whatever early season threats uh, a specific farmer has on, on any specific field. You bet. And just opening up the possibilities for growers as we face more and more resistant weeds to conventional applications and conventional modes of action, here's a way we can maybe revitalize some of these I'm going to say older technologies, older chemicals, and make it work with our current growing season, our growing uh, uh, models. That's exactly right, and that's really where we where we really uh, view the potential for for what we're doing and for nanotechnology in general. I mean, it's, as I said earlier, it's all about controlling how that chemistry, you know, how that chemical interacts with uh, interacts with its environment to help it do its job. And if we can control that, then we can provide uh, innovation uh, based on trusted known products that growers already use, but help them do things that they've never been able to do before. And that creates some new innovation. It creates some new solutions, some new tools in the toolbox uh, without it needing to, you know, without a completely new mode of action or completely new chemical needing to be developed. Cause that takes a lot of time and money and there really isn't, uh, isn't as much coming there as we'd like. So if we can take some existing chemistries and, and, renew them and make them more cutting edge again. We think that, that, uh, that that's really helpful for, uh, for growers today. Now, i got to ask, we're talking about application of polymers across an entire field. Over time, does this create some detrimental agronomic effects if we're, I mean, mini plastic particles? Is that a concern? No, the plastic, uh, the polymers, the plastics that we use in our materials, uh, break down pretty well um, in the environment, so the the microbes in the soil will will eat them, and the amount that's being applied is uh, such a small amount that 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 there's uh, there's a lot of ability for those to break down pretty quickly. So it really isn't uh, isn't a long term issue. Gotcha. So it's environmentally friendly, and we're revitalizing chemicals that uh, may have been sitting on a shelf for the past couple uh, years. Absolutely. Now, Darren, before we let you go, if we've got growers who aren't currently using this or they're interested in trying some of the products, where should they go? How can they get in touch with what Vive is, is creating? So uh, best place to, to find more details is at our website, which is www.vivecrop.com. Uh, ultimately, they can send us a quick note by email, uh, and we're happy to connect them with a retailer in their area that carries the product. Uh, our email address is products at vivecrop, V-I-V-E-C-R-O-P dot com. And they can also follow us on Twitter at vivecrop. One more question for you, Darren, before we let you go. How long has nanotech been around in the ag sphere? Are you guys the pioneers? We are. Uh, we're, we're the first company to have products containing nanotechnology uh, approved for use in food crops. So uh, we're really very excited about uh, the potential for this technology, uh, the potential to uh, take known, safe, trusted products and uh, help them be used in new ways. And, and we're really excited about uh, uh, about the future for this technology. Fantastic. Darren Anderson from Vive Crop Protection, thanks for taking the time to chat with me today. 
My pleasure. Well, Delaney, using nanotechnology in farm fields, it's a very, very cool idea. I'm excited to see where it goes in the future. Yeah, there's a lot of cool tech coming out on the marketplace right now, including the tech that we're working on at the Global Ag Network. We've got still finishing up the final touches on our website, globalagnetwork.com, but we've got a lot of tech-focused podcasts and other ag-focused podcasts, so be sure to check those out and interact with those folks on social media as well. But if you want to interact with Ag News Daily on social media, Mike, where can they do that? They should check us out on Twitter at Ag News Daily and the same name, Ag News Daily, on Facebook. And with that, Delaney, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.